ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Friday the 1st of March. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yagara people. Today, electoral test. Voters head to the polls tomorrow in the Dunkley by-election. It's a major test for both the standing of the Albanese government and Peter Dutton's opposition. And Australian women suffer from a global shortage of a drug to ease the symptoms of menopause. One of the women at the pharmacy said, oh, there's going to be a lot of cranky women in Australia. That's probably pretty accurate, but I think that's actually trivialising the issue. It's not about being cranky, it's about being able to function. First today, the survivors and families of the victims of New Zealand's Fakari White Island disaster have been awarded almost $10 million in compensation. In December 2019, the island's volcano erupted, killing 22 people. Most were tourists, including 17 Australians. The judge also sentenced five guilty parties, with the maximum penalty of close to $1 million imposed on the company held by the owners of the volcano. Reporter Emily Clark has been following the story. Emily, what's been the focus of this prosecution? Well, this case was brought by New Zealand's Workplace Health and Safety Regulator, WorkSafe New Zealand, and it's been about how the organisations involved in taking tourists to New Zealand's most active volcano understood and managed the risk to those tourists and to their own staff. And so WorkSafe had originally charged 13 parties and we had five of the guilty parties sentenced today. And so take us through today's decision. So there were two parts to it, really. The first part was about the penalties that Judge Evangelos Thomas imposed on the guilty parties and then also the amount of money that they should pay families of victims and also survivors who are obviously still dealing um, with injuries that they sustained on that day back in 2019. So I guess the biggest figure from today is that those families have been awarded nearly 10 million Australian dollars in reparations for their suffering. And what happens now? Well, interestingly, the company that was ordered to pay the biggest penalty and the second biggest reparation figure is a company called Fakari Management Limited. That's held by three brothers who privately own Fakari. So... They were originally charged as individuals, but those individual charges were dismissed last year. And there was a lot of anticipation around what their company would face. So they will have to pay the penalty of nearly a million dollars. But there's questions around how much capacity that their company has to pay that. And Judge Thomas was really strong in court today, kind of appealing to their moral obligation or imperative to, as individuals, front up with that money. So that will be the question going forward. Reporter Emily Clark. Voters in the seat of Dunkley will go to the polls tomorrow. The seat in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne will be a major test for both the standing of the Albanese government and Peter Dutton's opposition. Dunkley was held by Labor's Peter Murphy, who died from breast cancer in December. Labor holds the seat by a margin of 6.3%, but many predict a closer contest. Our reporter Samantha Donovan is in the seat of Dunkley. She joined me a short time ago. Sam, why is this by-election being watched so closely? 
Well, Rachel, I think the political pundits are, are looking at it to give us an indication of how the two main parties are, are going roughly a year out from the next federal election, which must be held before May next year. So will voters in this outer suburban Melbourne seat punish the Albanese government for the high cost of living at the moment? or lower and middle income earners please that they'll get more of a, a tax cut under the Labor plan compared to the, the Coalition's original tax cuts. Also, looking at whether Peter Dutton's Liberal Party is appealing to voters in this seat. Uh, they're emphasising, of course, the cost of living at the moment, Labor's broken promise over tax cuts, and also worries about the crime rate in this seat, which is higher than the Victorian average. Uh, the state, of course, Victoria, as we know, has been a tough state for the Liberal Party to do well in in recent elections. So the result here might give us an insight into whether they're striking a chord with Victorian voters. Another feature of this poll, Rachel, has been the anti-Labor campaign run by the right-wing lobby group Advance Australia. Uh, it's been spending up big on social media ads. Uh, the late Peter Murphy won this seat at uh, the 2022 poll with a margin of 6.3%. This by-election is to find her replacement. Jodie Bellier is the Labor candidate. She's a community worker. And Nathan Conroy, the Mayor of Frankston, is the Liberal candidate. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been in Dunkley this morning to make a final appeal to voters. This is a community that need a local champion. Jodie Bellier will be that local champion. I have every confidence that she will carry on Peter Murphy's legacy. And one of the differences between Jodie Bellier and the other candidates in this by-election is that she'll be a voice in government, someone who can get things done and not just be another bloke sitting behind all the other blokes in Peter Dutton's team. That's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and opposition leader Peter Dutton is also campaigning today in Dunkley. Most people in the Dunkley electorate, they are voting because they know that this is a bad government. They know that after 18 months, there's nobody here in this local community who is better off than when Mr Albanese was first elected. Uh, so I think it's a very important by-election uh, and we're going to fight tooth and nail and um, I want to congratulate all of our local volunteers. Opposition leader Peter Dutton speaking there and Sam, you've been speaking to Dunkley voters this morning. What have they been telling you? Well, cost of living's certainly been raised quite a bit, Rachel. Also, as we've been hearing in reports yesterday and today, the Liberal Party's been raising the issue of crime as a reason Dunkley voters should vote Liberal. Uh, Peter Dutton and his deputy, Susan Lee, pointed to the arrest of a, a former immigration detainee uh, on assault charges as evidence that the Labor, Labor government isn't keeping women safe in Victoria from what they called foreign criminals. Now, police sub subsequently admitted they'd arrested the wrong man. Uh, we heard Labor frontbencher Jason Clare this morning slamming Susan Lee for a grubby political debate. Uh, but I, as I spoke to Dunkley voters this morning, I, I found they had a range of issues on their minds. I'm just cost of living. Everything's just going crazy. The Liberal Party's raising quite a bit the issue of crime in the Frankston area. Is that something on your mind? Not really, to be honest with you. The Liberal That's candidate it. has said that women in Mount Eliza and Frankston are sleeping with bats by no, their bed at all. I'm not scared to walk in the dark, walk to the park at night, nothing, no. I didn't know there was more crime yeah. in Frankston. Just I just thought crime was a worldwide thing everywhere. 
Some of the voters there in Dunkley and Sam, the Labor Party has had some more sad news today with the death of a Victorian senator. Yes, the Victorian Senator Linda White has sadly died, Rach. She'd been the Assistant National Secretary of the Australian Services Union for many years before she was elected as a Senator for Victoria at the 2022 election. The Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, this morning said his heart was broken by the news and I think it's particularly sad at this time, Rachel, because as I mentioned, this by-election is to replace Labor MP Peter Murphy, who died of cancer late last year, and Mr Albanese has said this morning that to lose two women in their prime within three months of each other is beyond belief. Samantha Donovan there in Dunkley. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. In Gaza, Palestinian health officials say more than 100 people were killed and many more injured after a crowd stormed a convoy of aid trucks. Witnesses say Israeli soldiers fired towards the crowd. Israel says the deaths were a result of a stampede. Aid groups say it's a sign of the desperation and the breakdown of order in Gaza. Nicole Johnston reports. The Israeli military has released grainy pictures of hundreds of Palestinians pushing shoving, clamouring for food. They rushed towards a convoy of aid trucks in North Gaza, guarded by Israeli soldiers. In the madness, Gaza's health officials say more than 100 people were killed. Israel is calling it a crush. It says the crowd was threatening. Peter Lerner is an Israeli military spokesman. In the heat of the moment, masses of people stormed the trucks, climbed on the trucks in order to grab and loot the stuff that was being transferred to shelters in northern Gaza. What happened in the course of this, that people trampled one another, the trucks continued to move, and indeed they ran over people. And we understand that the vast majority of the people, tens of people that were killed in this incident, are apparently as a result from the trampling and the ramming and the running over by the trucks. But Palestinian witnesses say soldiers fired on civilians. Doctors say they're treating patients with gunshot wounds. Conflicting accounts, but the end result is the same. Dozens of people are dead. Sami Ziara is a journalist in Gaza's southern city of Rafa. He says the convoy was carrying flour. Around 30 trucks was waiting near Anitzarim settlement by the coastal road. So when the people, they are seeing the truck, the people, they are starving and they run and they need to take the flowers. Suddenly the Israeli opened fire against the people and then the tank opened fire as well. According to the Minister of Health, around 112 were killed, 760 injured. Israel says that the people were acting in a threatening way. And what the Israeli want from people which they are starving for three or four months? And some people, they came every day and the aid which entering, it's not enough for all the people which they are lining up there. But Israel says that's not how it happened. It insists warning shots were fired. Peter Lerner again. The tank opened fire with uh, high, uh, light uh, munitions, not an artillery round, uh, in warning shots in order to disperse the people from approaching the tank. And indeed, as they continue to move forward, in, uh, in, in a perceived threat, some shots were fired, limited, controlled and non-extensive. Whatever happened, one thing is clear. 
In Gaza, there's no security, not even for aid convoys. Jeremy Conneindyke is the president of Refugees International. He says the Israeli military doesn't have enough experience in delivering aid. It seems that when the crowd began to uh, swarm around the aid trucks, troops began opening fire and uh, it quickly turned very, very violent. You know, when you are doing an aid distribution in an extraordinarily desperate environment and an environment that is not fully secure, that requires a lot of care, a lot of preparation, a lot of advanced planning, a lot of coordination with the community that's going to receive it. And it doesn't appear here that any of that sort of groundwork had been done in advance. If the military is going to be involved, there have to be very, very strict rules of engagement uh, and scenario planning for what happens if things do go wrong. And in this convoy, something went seriously wrong. For Gazans, there is no help on the horizon and the strip is sinking deeper into despair. Nicole Johnston there. To Europe now, Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned the West it risks nuclear war if troops are sent to fight in Ukraine, as suggested by the French president this week. It's not the first time the Kremlin leader has threatened a direct confrontation, but this nuclear warning was one of his most explicit, coming as Sweden is officially admitted into NATO. However, experts say the president's threats are just bluster, the West has heard before, and they see little upside in Putin acting on his warnings. Europe correspondent Catherine Dis reports from London. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Just two weeks from the presidential election in which he's assured of winning, Vladimir Putin used his annual address to Parliament to warn the West he's ready for nuclear war. We also have weapons. They know this. We also have a weapon that can hit targets on their territory. And they should understand what they're doing now, trying to scare the whole world. It does create the risk of a nuclear conflict, which means the destruction of civilization. Don't they understand this or what? He's made these types of comments before, but this one could be seen as one of his most explicit. Visibly angry, the Russian president was reacting to a suggestion by French President Emmanuel Macron that NATO countries send ground troops to Ukraine, an idea that has already been rejected by America, Britain and Germany. They're talking about the possibility of sending NATO military contingents to Ukraine. But we remember the fate of those who once sent their contingents to our country. But now the consequences for possible interventionists will be much more tragic. He's also faced another threat from NATO this week, with Sweden finally gaining entry into the alliance. It's necessary to strengthen our military groups in the West, to neutralise threats associated with the eastward expansion of NATO, after it included Sweden and Finland in the alliance. Former commanding general in the US Army in Europe, Ben Hodges, says the West has heard all of this before. This is part of their weapons. Um, the Russians don't think about being at war or not at war the way we do. They are always in conflict and it's just they use different weapons and tools. Sometimes it's military force, sometimes it's disinformation, sometimes it's threats, sometimes it's murder. Uh, and when they see weakness, they push against that weakness. And so us are indicating that we'll do anything to avoid a nuclear escalation. 
that's the kind of weakness that they just exploit. He says Putin is walking all over Western allies because they aren't reacting with strong enough rhetoric. We could, number one, remind them we have a massive nuclear capability ourselves. And the president, two years ago, he said, he told the Russians, if you use a nuclear weapon, it will be catastrophic consequences. He needs to keep saying that. Number two, what are our strategic objectives? And, and of course, it is in our interest that Russia is defeated by Ukraine. So we should say that. It's no accident that Putin has sharpened his tone. It's just two weeks out from the presidential poll. But with Finland and Sweden on his western flank now firmly in the NATO alliance, he could feel like his borders are closing in. Europe correspondent Catherine Diss. The future of letter deliveries looks increasingly uncertain, with Australia Post confirming deeper losses in its traditional letters business. While Australia Post's half-year profit is slightly higher, declining letter deliveries and fewer customers visiting post offices means the agency's chief executive is facing some hard decisions. The ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan has been looking at the numbers and we spoke earlier. Peter Ryan, you've been speaking with Australia Post Chief Executive Paul Graham. What are these results telling him? Well, Rachel, Paul Graham does see a future for Australia Post, but not under the current business model, where fewer people are sending and receiving letters. Deliveries have already been cut back, but also people want more parcels rather than bills or junk mail. And that's part of the modernisation Paul Graham is trying to achieve. So today, profit before tax a bit better at $33.6 million. It's up $10 million on a year ago. But revenue from the letters business is down 2.7% to $858 million. And letter volumes have basically crashed by 12% in the same period. Paul Graham told me time is getting tight as he continues to consult with the federal government and workers on modernisation reforms, though he remains committed to turning Australia Post into a sustainable business. Well, it's still really important, uh, Peter, but it's absolutely essential that we get uh, these reforms implemented. And indeed, uh, these are the first phase and we also need to get the second phase reforms to ensure that Australia Post is financially sustainable for the long term. Given the pressures you're facing there, how long before letter deliveries end altogether? Well, it's a good question and one I get asked uh, frequently. Uh, look, you know, people are moving to digital uh, notifications, obviously the banks, insurance companies, etc. But look, we'll have continued decline. I don't know whether it's a 10-year window, but uh, I can assure the public that the last letters delivered will be delivered by Australia Post. But if letter volumes, importantly, are going backwards down by 11.9%, will you have to at least review or trim back deliveries even more? Yes, uh, in terms of pure letter deliveries, we will, and that's certainly part of our discussions. There's no point walking past every household in the country if you've got nothing to deliver. Uh, that's just a waste of, of, of taxpayers' uh, money and our money. Uh, but what we will be doing now, and as we've seen on the trials that we have launching, we are starting to deliver more parcels uh, with our posties. So our posties will still be visible on the streets for five or even six days, uh, but they'll progressively deliver more parcels because that is a growing business for us. Australia Post has been delivering for 214 years, but is the community service obligation now pretty much a thing of the past? No, it's still a, a large cost for us. It's over $400 million a year. Uh, we're very proud of uh, that commitment that we have. Uh, but yes, the uh, the the cost of uh, doing that, uh, particularly from a male perspective, uh, continues
continues to be a burden. But what are businesses and consumers telling you? Do they still want letters to be delivered? Do they want the letter deliveries to end so they can get a, a better parcel service from Australia Post? Yeah, the average household now gets less than two letters a week. Uh, it sends less than, you know, 15 letters a year. You know, your your, your bill or your, your letter around, uh, you know, mortgage rate, uh, they continue to be sent uh, in a physical sense. But your point is absolutely correct. People are going into our post office less. Uh, they're going in for parcels, but certainly over-the-counter transactions like banking or other services are, are being digitised, and that means people have less reason to go to their local post office. Australia Post Chief Executive Paul Graham and before him, our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Australian women are facing months at a time without menopause medication due to global shortages. The country's supply of a hormone replacement therapy patch called Astalis Continuous has been disrupted and it could be weeks until stock becomes available. Experts say this could have long-term health impacts for women who rely on the treatment to keep symptoms at bay. Anna Pikett reports. For me, I had around-the-clock hot flushes to the point where I was completely bathed in sweat, heart rate going really fast, anxiety, aches and pains. You feel like a 70-year-old woman. These are just a few of the exhausting and inconvenient symptoms Gippsland woman Anne Berthelsen-Murray is experiencing as a result of menopause. All women are affected by menopause, with most experiencing symptoms for five to ten years, and thousands across the country rely on hormone replacement therapy to keep them at bay. But a global shortage of a type of HRT patch called a starless continuous is leaving some women in despair. Pharmacist Louise O'Keefe says it contains both oestrogen and progesterone, which is the preferred option for women who still have a womb who need to take progesterone to reduce their risk of endometrial cancer. It is the only combined HRT patch on the market in Australia, on the PBS. Uh, there are other HRT patches, but they only contain oestrogen. Anne Berthelsen Murray says sometimes her symptoms are so bad she can't leave the house and she's been forced to cut existing patches in half to ensure she doesn't go without. You turn up to pick up your script and you're just told that, no, sorry, there's, there's no supply. We don't know when there'll be more. And, you know, you, you're not really offered an alternative and it's so incredibly debilitating menopause for so many thousands of women. Professor Susan Davis is the head of Monash University's Women's Health Research Program. She says since the COVID pandemic, there's been multiple shortages of menopausal hormone therapy in Australia. Particularly with respect to oestrogen patches and oestrogen progestogen patches. So there's the issue of the return of the symptoms and the frustration of going from pharmacy to pharmacy to pharmacy to try and get their therapy or to get an alternative that will supplement the therapy that they're on. Professor Davis says disrupting HRT treatment can have long-term health impacts for some women. Oestrogen protects against bone loss, and women particularly who um, are taking oestrogen to protect their bones may have recurrence of bone loss while they're not on oestrogen long-term if it's months. But really, it's predominantly symptoms and quality of life. The company that makes the drug, Sandos, has told the ABC it's working with manufacturing and distribution partners to try to meet patient demand. In a statement, it says all medical shortages are reported on the TGA website, with the expected return date updated regularly.
The Pharmacy Guild of Australia's Professor Trent Toomey says the situation has been exacerbated by Australia's position at the bottom of the global supply chain. Exclusively over 90% of the medications in Australia are imported. And when Australia is a small market, we are not necessarily a high priority for these global drug manufacturers. Sandos says it's expected back on shelves as early as April. But for women like Anne, that's a long time to wait. You can imagine it's adjusted and balanced your hormones and then all of a sudden you stop taking it, your hormones go out of control. That can mean wild mood swings, depression. I mean, one of the the women at the pharmacy said, oh, there's going to be a lot of cranky women in Australia. That's probably pretty accurate, but I think that's actually trivialising the issue. It's not about being cranky. It's about being able to function. Gippsland woman Anne Berthelsen-Murray ending that report from Anna Pikett and Daniel Miles. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Rachel Mealy. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. She had a grand ambition to knock off Donald Trump and become the Republican Party's choice to run in November's US election. But Nikki Haley couldn't do it. And it's almost certain now that Trump will run against Joe Biden. So why has she held on? Why doesn't she just give up before almost certain defeat at so-called Super Tuesday next week? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.